0: From this trouble I have found, in this rubble on the ground, I will rise. This yes, I will rise, out of these ashes, rise. From this trouble I have found, in this rubble on the ground, I will rise. Good morning, everybody. Fourth and fifth graders, you're dismissed to your class. Fourth and fifth graders, you're dismissed to your class. I grew up in this church, and I grew up about two blocks away from here on Oakside Street. And when I was a little boy, a little Sammy picture in your head here, uh, not that I'm much taller, but I was back then much younger. Um, uh, we had an older couple in our church named uh, Mark and Pauline Garn, and they lived on Woodside, which is just one street uh, before Oakside here. And every once in a while, they would invite just me, not my parents, not my sister, just little Sammy over to eat dinner every once in a while. So I would just walk up the alley to Woodside Street and go to Mark and Pauline Garn's house to eat. And one evening, uh, they'd invite me over, and I'd eaten a delicious meal and eaten almost all of it, when Mark Garn said to me, just think older man, says to me, you know what you just ate? And in my head, I thought, I just ate roast beef. That's what I thought I was eating. He goes, no, no, that's cow's tongue. And then I had this moment of one both complete horror that I had just eaten cow's tongue, and then the second moment, the surprise that I thought was actually pretty good that I had eaten cow's tongue. He was also the same man. I would never had horseradish before, and he took a spoonful of it, just a horseradish. I said, here, you should try it with that. And So he gave me a whole spoonful of horseradish, and I ate it. And as tears came to my eyes and things were burning, I thought, this is one sadistic old man. I shouldn't come back here. I don't know what's going on with that. But in line of that, I'd like to play for a moment the the uh, would you eat that game. Uh, I don't know, Have anyone watched the Travel Channel, that uh, Bizarre Foods by, with Andrew Zimmerman? You ever seen some stuff that guy eats? It's like, oh, oh. God. So let me show you some pictures here, and you let me know whether you think you would ever eat this or not. The first one here, it is called kasu marzu. It's a cheese. But kasu marzu means maggot cheese. Because how they make it is early in the fermentation process, they put that larvae that will hatch maggots, and it eats up the cheese, and it gives it a flavor that some people in the Sardinian area seem to enjoy. Who would eat maggot cheese? Anyone? A few, just like, yeah, I'll try. It said cheese is still on the end, so we're all good. What about this one? It's called balut, and it is a delicacy in some parts of the world. You see what that is? It is a fertilized duck egg. It looks at first like a hard-boiled egg, and then you open it, and oh, that's a duck right there. Anyone eat that, Balut? Anyone? No, not even if you're on Survivor and you're not eating that? Okay. Next one. This one sounds delicious. This is called bat paste. Let me tell you how they make bat paste in some parts of the world. It has to be the alive bat. You catch it, and you force it into boiling milk until it is malleable, which by the way, I don't think the adjective malleable should ever be used with food that should be eaten. And then it is sliced into bits and mixed with various herbs and spices and mashed into a pulpy paste. (laughs) Next one here, coxcomb. You know what that is right there? The rooster, the top of the rooster. You see that? Some parts of the world love this. It's like chips. Chips. In Iraq, let me give you another one. You see this boiled sheep's head? It is boiled with usually the stomach and the feet for broth, and it's just then you eat at the table a head of a sheep. Woo. Next one here is called hazma, and it is dehydrated frog fallopian tubes that, when water is added to it, and add a little bit of su- sugar for some sweetness. It's a dessert in some parts of the world. Yeah, you're welcome. Oh, here's my favorite. Look at this. Black pudding. You want to know what black pudding is? Anyone hungry yet for dinner? You're like, I'm in the mood for lunch. (laughs) Let me tell you what black pudding is. Black pudding is, it is simply blood from either cattle, pigs, or sheep that's been allowed to coagulate, and then they put filler in it of either oatmeal, barley, or sweet potatoes, and then put it in a sausage-like skin container. Black pudding. (laughs) Next one right here. What about this? It's important in Korea... It is rooster testicles. (laughs) What are you doing? I'm just eating a bowl of rooster testicles. (laughs) Here's one they eat in Alaska, I'm told. It's jellied moose nose. Let me tell you how it's done. They cut off the nose of the moose, and it's boiled for a bit until the hairs become loose enough that you can easily pluck them free. Then you add a few spices to it. The meat is boiled even longer until it is a gelatinous mass, another word that I don't want with my food, a gelatinous mass, Then it is sliced and served chilled. That is jellied moose nose. What about this one here? Anyone eat this? You know what this is? This, my friends, is Outback cheese fries. (laughs) There are 2,900 calories that you're looking at, 182 grams of fat, 240 grams of carb, 2,342 milligrams of sodium on that plate right there. When Jesus returns for our great banquet, this will be on it. But now, specifically going into the issue of Corinth, let me show you another picture and ask if you would eat this. It looks pretty good, full of dips and different spices and fruits. I think I see apple or mango on there. And when I say it, I go, oh, that looks pretty good. But hold on for just a moment with it. It's actually, it's a dish that's made typically in areas of Hindu, uh, of uh, India. It's called Daiva ja is the name of it. And this is the background for it. Now, this is where would you eat this comes in. Like, looking at you're like, yeah, that's better than rooster testicles. I would eat that over that. But... Here it is. You make this dish during a particular festival in honor of Ganesha, who is the son of the Lord Shiva and Parvati, and it's believed that during the festival Ganesha's presence is comes to earth for duration during the festival for his devotees. It is a celebration of the day that his father, the Lord Shiva, declared that his son Ganesha is superior to all the gods. He is widely worshipped as the god of wisdom and prosperity and good fortune and traditionally invoked at the beginning of either a new venture or a new travel. And so what would happen is during this festival, in honor of the god, in worship to the god, you would make this plate of food, the Naivajah, and you then offer it up to Ganesha in the temple, in the sacrifices, in the worship setting, and then later afterwards it would be eaten by the worshippers. The question for us as followers of Jesus is this. Would you eat this plate of food? Because this is at the heart the question that the church of Corinth is trying to wrestle with that Paul begins to address when you get to chapter 8. It is, can they eat food that they know has been sacrificed and offered to the gods in the temples in Corinth? Their question is simply this. Can I eat that? To which the, the Apostle Paul is trying to respond. Now, you need to remember what we've been saying now week after week is, The Corinthian church, the people in the church, they have spent their entire lives outside of Jesus. So picture that, 20, 30, 40 years or more you've been outside of Jesus, one day you encounter Jesus, you fall in love with Jesus, you give your life to Jesus, and now you're trying to figure out how do you take that old life and have a new life in Jesus? Because you know and I know when you meet Jesus, it's not like you mystically and magically, boom, in a moment everything changes. If you thought that for 30 years, meeting Jesus doesn't mean that goes away. If you behave this particular way for 30 years, meeting Jesus doesn't mean that that behavior goes away. What happens is after meeting Jesus, we enter into a process that's called sanctification, which is a big fancy church word that means my life is becoming more holy, more purified. It means now that I'm on this side of Jesus, I've got to go back and say, I used to think that, but now that I'm in Jesus, what are the new thoughts that I need to have? I used to behave like this, but now that I'm in Jesus, what are the new behaviors? And and it's a process, it's something that's unfolding and ongoing. And one of the issues that they had is for 30, 40 years or more of their life, they used to go into temples and eat those and participate in a sacrifice to the other gods of the temples, and they would eat. And the question is now that we're in Jesus, Can we still do that? Can we still go to those temples and enjoy that meal and enjoy the sacrifice and the food there that's offered there? Now, just to give you a little bit of a background in terms of food that's sacrificed to idols and what that looked like 2,000 years ago in the city of Corinth, if you remember from the very first week when we started this series, we said, Corinth is a major port city, and because of that, you could find anything there. I mean, you want to talk about different kinds of behaviors. They They were all represented in the city of Corinth. And if you want to talk about different religions, they were all represented in the city of Corinth. I mean, you had religions that would mirror the Roman Greco worldview. You would have some that mirror Egyptian worldviews or Asian worldviews. And you could find temples were everywhere in the city of Corinth. And within those temples, you would have a part of the ceremony, part of the worship, was what was called a cultic meal. That's what they called a cultic meal. And these cultic meals... In the time of Paul, were a regular practice both at state festivals and also private celebrations of various kinds. And so here's some the archaeologists have uncovered invitations that you might send to your friends or family to invite them to one of these cultic meals to celebrate some social occasion. Let me read you one that they found. It, it says this is from the cult of Asclepius, which was a prominent temple in Corinth. So that's the temple. Here's what it is. Caramon, requests your company at the table of the Lord Serapis at the Serapium the 15th at 9 o'clock, where the first birthday of a daughter is to be celebrated at a meal in the Serapium. So you see what's happening? It's this man's daughter's first birthday. They want to have a birthday party. We do it in the temple. And while we're in the temple, we offer sacrifices to God, including with this, right, the sacrifice of this meat. Then we all sit down, we have a cultic meal together. That would be a normal part of your life in first century Corinth. There were three parts to this uh, uh, cultic meal. One was the preparation, elaborate preparations, and some was very ceremonial. The second was the sacrifice proper, like the actual sacrificing of the animal and to, to the gods. And the third was then uh, the uh, eating of it, the, the feast itself. Those were the three parts of the cultic meal. And then the meat itself, let me tell you, there's usually three portions of it. Like you cut the meat up into thirds. One part was burned before the gods. That was given to the gods, and it was burned up. The other part was given then to the worshippers. This is what we eat. And sometimes it was a lot. And a third part was placed on what's called the table of the God, which was usually eaten by those who worked in the temple. Whatever your function was, if you worked there, you were given food to eat. And the gods were thought to be present since the meals were held in their honor and because the sacrifices were made. But nonetheless, not only were they very religious, but they were also very and intensely social occasions for all the participants. And for the most part, the Gentiles of the Corinthian church had become believers in Jesus in Corinth but they had spent their entire life doing this. And back then, you know, they didn't have restaurants. It wasn't like, I'm tired, I don't want to cook, let's go to Steak and Shake. It wasn't that. Like, the restaurants of antiquity were the temple. You would go to the temple to eat meals, and so this was a normal part of their life. And the question that the Corinthian church has is, can we still go? But you can see how this has huge social implications, doesn't it? I like, Just picture that in your mind. This is the way things work in the first century. If you and your wife and your children were following after Jesus, but the rest of your family didn't, like all of your other brothers and sisters or your parents, they don't, you can imagine the awkwardness when they want to invite you to a birthday party for your niece, and it's in the temple. Now you've got the awkwardness of, do we just skip out of this? Do we not go to those uh, services and, att- and those, attend those parties? We say, "Well, not, I'm following Jesus. we can't. Sorry, best regards, here's a gift. I mean, that's the real practical question that they have that they're trying to address with Paul. Can we still go? But what's making this so difficult for Paul and complicated is that meat that's sacrificed in the temple, sometimes other things happen to it. Like sometimes you had so much that it would be taken to the marketplace and sold. And so the question became, what about meat in the marketplace? Can we buy it there or no? We can't even have it there. And sometimes they just had leftovers. Like you take it home as leftovers. And what happens if one of your unbelieving neighbors invites you over for dinner and the meat that they serve at the table is meat that was originally sacrificed in the temple? you see how it gets really complicated in their mind? I mean, so, okay, can we do this in the temple? What about if we're just at the marketplace? What if we're at somebody's private home? And what are the rules for us now that we're in Jesus? And Paul has to attend to all these issues. And I think there are huge principles and implications for us today, even though I know they're hard to see at first. You're like, well, this ain't our problem, so what does it have to do? But I think it does. Now just one more thing in terms of background. Here's the background fight I think that's happening in the church in Corinth over this issue. It appears the church is divided. Like half of the church says, it's totally fine to go back to the temples. We belong to Jesus. It doesn't mean anything. We can go to the temples and eat. It's no big deal. And the other half of the church is saying, oh no you can't. Now that we're in Jesus, you can't go back to that old life. You can't go back and worship those gods in that way. And so there's fighting going on. They're, they're, not, they're not in agreement. And so one is upset with the other side, and that seems to be the background. Now, the side that wants to go eat in the temple or that are that they already are eating in the temple, it looks like they're kind of they're coming against Paul with several arguments here. And it, this goes back to the heart of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 11. But now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother who is sexually immoral or greeter or an idolater. See, this is the issue. Is that idolatry? Like, is that going back and doing what we were doing? Or a slanderer, or a drunkard, or a swindler with such a man? Don't even eat. So here's the arguments that they seem to be making to Paul. Paul seemed to have written them earlier and said, don't do this. And they're responding with four arguments. Number one is this. Well, we already have knowledge about idols. And what they're basically saying is, Paul, come on, dude. We know there's only one God, therefore there are no other gods. So going back to those temples, does not mean anything to us because there's no real God. I mean, that idol, is, we know that's not a real God, and so they have all knowledge. Number two, we've got knowledge about food. We know that God is indifferent towards food. He doesn't care whether you eat this or don't eat this. No, no, You don't get closer to God or further away from food. Food, in the end, is neutral. It's irrelevant. And praise God, that's why we get to eat bacon, right? Now, do you get closer to Jesus by eating bacon? Yes. Oh, wait, no, no. I meant, no, that's not right. No, you don't. In the end, what they're trying to say is, it's indifferent. God doesn't care about food. Number three, they're saying this. Well, we've been baptized and we take communion on a regular basis, and so we're safe. It seems that they're saying they are somehow above falling or above idolatry because they have been baptized, and on a regular basis, they participate in the Lord's Supper at his table in communion, and so somehow they're safe. And then number four, they are questioning Paul's apostolic authority on this matter, on two two, two grounds. They're looking at Paul, and they notice he won't take our money. Now, right now, (laughs) 2,000 years later, the church is like, what a good deal. (laughs) But back then, that was looked down upon. Because if Paul will not accept their financial support, then what does Paul have to do? He's got to get a job. And what does Paul do for a living? He makes tents. And making tents back in this day was sort of kind of on the low end of blue collar. And so, for the church of Corinth, it was a little embarrassing like their leader, their apostle, their spiritual philosopher and teacher works with his hands in this way. It was a little embarrassing to them, and they wanted him to take their money. Like, please, don't don't go to work. We want you to be supported by us, and then you could spend your whole time just teaching the philosophies and teachings of Jesus. That's what they wanted. And Paul, knowing this, knowing that they want to kind of have, they had this worldview and thoughts about him, and even kind of ownership of him. Paul refused it, and so that's one of their issues. Like, well, he won't take her money. But the second is Paul. Feel, Paul kind of looks like a hypocrite on this issue. Like. Paul's own practice in the marketplace, that meat, when he's with Gentiles, he'll eat it. But when he's with the Jews, he won't eat it. What kind of example is that? He, he's like, it's like a hypocrite. You eat it, you don't eat it. Here, this group or that group, is look like a bunch of. And so, based on those two arguments, they're writing to say, well, we think, we don't even know if you have authority in this matter because you look like a hypocrite and you still work in this way with your hands. And so, those are the issues that they're bringing against Paul. So, let's get right into the text. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is where I'm at. Verse 1. If you've got your Bible, hold it up for me. Bibles, anyone got your Bibles this morning? Look at all those Bibles. That's all good. Verse 1, here we go. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now about food sacrificed to idols. Now, this is another issue. This is another question that he's, he's responded to their letter that they've written to him. And Paul now says, now about this issue. He goes on, we know that we all possess knowledge. Now, how many of your Bibles have this in quotation marks? Like, does your Bible, like this is in quotes, you see? Raise your hand up high, a couple of you. There you're, I think that's right. You got the best Bible here this morning. Because I think that's right. I don't think Paul is saying this. I think Paul is quoting them. And we've seen this every week, haven't we? Paul does this all the time. He continually quotes the Corinthians. Like, this is a slogan. This is a saying of theirs. Well, we possess all knowledge. We possess all knowledge. And they're just going around saying these things. And so that's what Paul is quoting here. And he goes on to say, but we, uh, he he goes on to say, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know, but the man who loves God is known by God. And so what you, what you have here is, it's a buzzword, it's a saying, this, this, well, we possess knowledge. And the Corinthian Christians, they've got several buzzwords that they're using that's very divisive. And the same thing happens in churches today. Like, the churches today can have a buzzword, and it becomes divisive This is well, we're this kind of a church and not that kind of a church. And, and you're like, we are a missional church. And when I mean all the other churches that are missional, they're not a real church. Or, well, we're spirit-filled church. I mean, no one else has the spirit like we do. I mean, those are buzzwords, you, and they're all over the place. Well, we're seeker-sensitive. Well, at our church, we have Christ-honoring music, which means they don't use a drum. I mean, how that works, they're buzzwords. The buzzwords in the Corinthian church is this. There's, let me give you three of them. We saw one of them already. One is Sophia, which means wisdom. That was all of chapter 1, 2, and 3, right? Oh, well, our leaders are so wise, and Sophia, we got the best wisdom. That was a, they were throwing that out all the time. But the second is what you see here, Gnosis knowledge is the Greek for it. Gnosis, it means knowledge. They're walking around saying, listen, we have knowledge. We know. And in that, all of a sudden, they're beating their brothers and sisters on the head with what they know, with their knowledge. And the third one we'll come to, we haven't seen it yet, is logos, which means word. But what Paul is doing here, he's trying to lay out a foundation for Christian ethics. What he's saying is, is it is born out of love, not knowledge. Love is the ultimate guide in regards to how we behave. I see you got a bunch of buzzwords, but one of the words you should have is agape, which in the Greek means love. That should be your buzzword, because that's the word that most reflects the person of Jesus. Someone who is full of knowledge can easily become prideful and arrogant. They become That's what he means, by being puffed up. And then when you get puffed up, you look down on everyone else, and that's what's happening here. And that happens all the time in churches, especially churches that really love Bible study. And listen, I'm not, I'm not knocking on Bible study. I am for Bible study, which, by the way, continue your yearly reading through the Word. I, I'm really, we're for Bible study. But I just, I know in my own heart, my own experience, I've been in a church where we had Sunday morning Bible study, then we had the sermon on Sunday morning, and then we went back on Sunday night and had some more Bible study, then we went back on Wednesday night and had Bible study, and then we had a small group Bible study. And man, you got to know the Bible, and when you got to know the Bible, you could do this. You go, man, I really know the Bible. You start looking around at everybody else, and you're going, I bet they don't know the Bible as much as I do. And you start watching a, a, a movie that's, like, from, based on the Bible, and you can pick out every flaw. That's not in the Bible. That's what we do. All right, then you, what happens is you begin to look down. You begin to be very judgmental and very condemning. And in the end, you've got sort of a mean spirit. Has anyone ever had that happen to them? Or you know somebody where the more they read the Bible, they're getting meaner? I, I've said this before, but let me say again just out loud. I mean, if you're reading the Bible and it's making you meaner, you're reading it wrong, right? Can we just agree with that? I mean, I don't care if even your interpretation is right. If in spirit you're becoming a jerk, <laughs> it's not working right, and we need to go back and ask. And that's what's happening in the church of Corinth. They've got all this knowledge. Oh, we know. We know idols. There's no other God but God. We know. And we know he's indifferent towards food. You can't get closer or further away. And that's what they're walking around because of that knowledge. All of a sudden they're acting in a particular way, and Paul's trying to say, I, I don't give a flip about your knowledge. Love is all that matters. This will be the guiding ethical principle and rule among us. And so if you want to throw out buzzwords, choose love. And this is important for us because we don't have a book, chapter, and verse for everything that's going to be in our life. Like something's going to come in your life that you're going to, you're going to have to, you're going to ask the question, is this okay for me to do or, or to think? I mean, now that I'm a Christian, can I still do this? And, and, and you're going to say, well, I wonder what the Bible has to say. And you know what you're going to find out? The Bible doesn't say anything about that. Like you just don't have a book, chapter, and verse for that particular issue. And when that comes across your life, what you need to know is what Paul lays out here the rule will be love. What you need to ask yourself is, Does by, by doing this, do I love God more or does it draw me away from God? By doing this, does it reflect my love for other people? Or no, by doing this, it shows that I'm selfish and I don't care what happens to other people. That becomes our rule in all things. Love is the guiding force. He goes on, verse 4. Let's, let's read there. Verse 4, he says this. So then, about eating food, sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. Now, in short, Paul's agreeing with him. You're right. We know there's only one God, and there are no other gods. We do know that. That's right. Verse 5, for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, and then he has this parenthetical note that says, as indeed there are many gods, quote unquote, and many lords, quote unquote. I don't think he's meaning to say there really are more gods and more lords. I think it's not objectively. What he's saying is subjectively. If somebody else believes that there are other gods and other lords, then for them, there are other gods and other lords. You see what he's saying there? It's not objectively, is there really another God? No, there's not. But subjectively, if your brother or sister in Christ believes that there are the existence of other gods, then for them, there are the existence of other gods. Yet, verse 6, for us, there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. So here's what Paul's trying to say. Listen, okay, you're right. We know there are no other gods. But do you realize you've got brothers or sisters in the same church who don't yet know that? They really do think there's other gods. They've spent 40 years in that context, and because of that, in their thinking and in their heart, they really do believe if they were to go back into that situation and that setting, it would be to honor and worship other gods. So you're not by yourself in this. You can't just be thinking about yourself. There are other people in the church who think differently, and if they were to go back to that, their conscience would then be defiled. And he finishes by saying, and you're right, God is indifferent." We don't get any closer to God or further away based on food. But then in verse 9, he turns and gives us the principle then which will guide us in this decision. Verse 9 is this. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. You see what he's saying? Do you have freedoms in Christ? Yes. But if those freedoms in Christ become a stumbling block to your brother or sister who has a weaker faith than you, then this is the issue. And that's what's happening in the church in Corinth. He goes on to say, for if anyone with a weak conscience then sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brother in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. Now this is the stumbling block principle that I think Paul is bringing out here, and basically this is not hey you're going to offend your brother or sister, and I hear that all the time in churches. Well we can't do it because it offends so and so, sister Bertha is going to get upset if we have that happen. I mean, and this passage has nothing to say about that, right? What this passage is saying is. By doing this, you embolden somebody to go back to their former life, and because of their conscience being weak, it literally makes them relapse in terms of their faith in Jesus. They relapse. Like, they they fall and stumble in regards to faith in Jesus. And that's the issue here. And if that's the case, Paul says, I won't eat meat again if that's the case. Like, if it's for the sake of my brother or sister, then I I won't eat again. And so he calls this group kind of the weak. And I was trying to think, like, what would be an analogy today? And it's difficult. Like, it is difficult to think of an analogy, but one I would just say is uh, the issue of alcohol. Like, is it a sin to drink a glass of wine? The answer is no. Like, is it a sin to have a beer after mowing the yard? The answer is no, right? But if somebody here at the Living Stones Church, and we have many here who are struggling through alcoholism, and so for them, this is not an okay thing. It's not a good idea. Here's what the rest of us do. We make sure that when we're together in community, we're not going to put anything in their path that will cause them to be tempted, to cause them to relapse, to cause them to go back to a bondage that we know that Jesus has rescued them from. And because of that, then we just abstain at that time, Right? for the sake of our brother and sister. Does that mean never? No, I mean privacy of my own home and this particular setting and context. But if I'm inviting friends over and I know two or three of them are struggling with alcoholism, then I'm probably not going to put a bottle of wine on the table because I recognize what we say, what we do when you're just coming out of that setting. You're so vulnerable to so many different things and I'm not going to put that in their path. I'm not going to make them, right? That's what I think Paul's saying here. We move out of love. I'm willing to put down one of my freedoms for the sake of my brother and sister. Same thing like Speedos. Are they sinful? No. I am free to wear a Speedo, but I choose to give up this right for the sake of my sisters in Christ and a few brothers so that you do not lust. You're welcome. (laughs) This burned in my head. All right, we're moving on to chapter 9. Chapter 9. I'm not going to read chapter 9, but let me tell you what's in it. Here, Paul will do a couple things. One, he will use himself as an illustration of this very principle. Like, he will say, look, I've got a right to this, and I'm choosing to give it up for you. That's what. But he will also respond to that, those two criticisms that they had of him, remember? One, that he wasn't taking their money. And number two, uh, that he's kind of a hypocrite in this issue. That's what Paul deals with in chapter 9. So the first 14 verses, Paul defends his right to financial support from them. Like, he'll spend 14 verses saying, As an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I have right to financial support. He sums it all up in verse 14 when he says, In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But then he moves on to verse 15 to say, But I have chosen to give up this right in this situation for the sake, because of where we're at and because of how you think and and what you want in my life, because I have have voluntarily chosen to give up this right. You see what he did with chapter 8? He lays out the the principle of giving up your right for the sake of the gospel. And chapter 9, he says, my own life is an illustration. I've given up my right to financial compensation for your sake and for the sake of the gospel. And so in that, uh, he goes on then in verse 19 to talk about this hypocrite issue. And what he says is, no, I'm not a hypocrite. I'm interested in saving as many people as possible through the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm not going to put anything as a stumbling block to that. Like, why would I needlessly offend somebody in the cause of Jesus if I don't have to? And so for Jews, oh, no, you can't eat that meat. That is like, whoa. So when, Jew, when, when Paul is with the Jews, he's not going to eat that meat because it, just, it doesn't serve him well in ministry, right? But when he's with the Gentiles, I mean, he doesn't want to be with a Gentile inside their home, and they serve him meat, and he's just going to go, no, I mean. So this is what he says in verse 20. Look at, look at verse 20. To the Jews, I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. It's like an Abbott and Costello routine, but you get it right. To the weak, I became weak. To win the weak, I have become all things to all men so that I might be all possible means. I might save some. I do all of this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. See what I'm saying? Man, if, if it's to rescue the Gentiles, I will act like a Gentile. If it's to rescue the Jews, I'll act like a Jew. I will act like I'm on the law, out of the law, weak, strong, whatever it takes to win people to Jesus, which I think there's a great message here about contextualization and how it is as a church we ought to be. Like, we could build a church that looks like 1956, but what will that mean to a community around us that lives in 2000 and, right? You get what I'm saying? And so in that, it's, yeah, I mean, we're, well, there's 42,500 people who live in the zip codes of 46613, 46614 all around us on the south side of South Bend. And what kind of a church should we look like? That. And within that, we, con- we contextualize the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what I think Paul here is referring to. And then he moves on in chapter 10, and he's talking, he gives us just a, a history lesson about this, the nation of Israel itself. And he spends the first 13 verses reminding the Corinthians of what happened to the Israelites. And when he gets to chapter 10, he's specifically talking about going into that temple and eating that cultic meal. He's not talking about in the marketplace. He's not talking about in a private home. He's talking about, can you go back into that temple and have that cultic meal? And in that, Paul's saying, no, you cannot. And he uses Israel as an example of both their idolatry and grumbling, which I think is interesting. He brings in the story about them grumbling uh, because I think that's probably what they're doing against Paul. And it appears in these first 13 verses that they're walking around saying, yeah, but I got baptized and I take communion, so I'm safe, and thus I can go back and, and I'm not going to fall from idolatry and face God's judgment. And I say there's something in this I think we could use a wake-up call in terms of our own culture. And hear, hear me in this because I'm not interested in bashing anybody. I'm not trying to do this. But I sense that sometimes we can do things and we think they're like magic potions with God, like they're magical tokens, and baptism is one of those like, oh, I got baptized, so it's like a magic token, I'm good with God now, and I would say, no, no, I mean, how you live your life still matters. In fact, in, in Catholic liturgies during the funeral mass, like, they will explicitly say, by virtue of their baptism, then they go on to talk about eternal life, and I would just, what I'd say is, I'm not saying they don't have eternal life, but it isn't by virtue of their baptism, it's by virtue of God's grace, and, and their life does matter, and how they live their life does matter, and we did the same thing in the churches of Christ, that's the acapella that I, that I grew up in, it's like, once you got baptized, okay, okay, okay they're safe, all right, I mean, uh, what Paul's saying is, no, no, how you live your life matters. Like, this isn't like, you're not going to go to God with your baptismal certificate. He's going to go, oh, well, come on in. I didn't no, no, I mean, it's a, there's something else going on here. And so in that, he then picks up, let's go to verse 14. Verse 14, he says this, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. You can't go back there anymore. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ and it's not the bread that we break. He's he's talking about communion. And not the bread that we break, a participation in the body of Christ. There, because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. He says, consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want you to participate with demons. You can just highlight that in your Bible. That's like a good idea. You should not participate with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons, too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's Supper and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Now, so he's going back here and he's saying, yes, you used to do that, but you can't anymore. And even though there are no other gods, blah, 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 we get that. But do you know what's really behind those idols? Demons. It's the demonic. No, it's not a god. It is a demon. And so in that, what Paul's saying is you cannot dabble in the demonic. And I know in our society and culture, we kind of elevate tolerance as our highest value. And if you mean by tolerance, like, yeah, we're not going to persecute people with different faiths and different thoughts, I'm totally down with that. But sometimes tolerance gets blended with syncretism and syncretism is an entirely different thing. What syncretism means is, yeah, on my spirituality plate, I want to have a little bit of Jesus, and I like this Hindu teaching and, and this principle from Buddha I like, and I like this new age principle, like, especially in terms of healing, and this is, my, this is my spiritual life. And what Jesus tells us is, oh, no, I'm it. I demand exclusive fidelity and loyalty, no one else. You can't have me plus anything. It is only me. I am the only Lord. I am the only king. I will be your only master. And so in that, he has some very difficult, I mean, Jesus himself says in the Gospels, unless you hate your mom and your dad and your parents and your wife and your children, you cannot be my disciple. And yeah, He says that. Like, I don't think he means literally like emotionally hate your parents. I think what he's saying is there'll be no priority over me. I will be number one. And he does not allow this syncretic view, and neither does Paul. He says, oh, no, you cannot be a Christian and also practice Hinduism. You can't. You cannot be a Christian and also be a follower of Buddha. You cannot. You can't be a Christian and dabble in new age religions and philosophies and teachings. You can't do that. You can't be a Christian and listen to Nickelback. It's just not a po- No, I'm just kidding. I made that last one up. That's not true. Okay. And then I would say, we don't want to be naive about the demonic. Like, we don't mess with horoscopes. We don't mess with Ouija boards, the occult, seances, fortune-telling, palm readers, psychics, When you look to any other spiritual power for either information or power, you are entering into a demonic realm that the Bible is very clear about in terms of warning. And if you hang out here for a while, you know I'm not into a bunch of mystical voodoo stuff. I don't, Harry Potter isn't evil. I'm not, there's not a demon behind every rock. But what I am saying is, oh no, but there still is demonic and evil powers. And there are principalities that belong in a satanic realm, and they can wreak havoc in the life of a Christian. And if we open ourselves up to those demonic powers, it will create a world of danger for us. And so we don't go there, because we belong to Jesus. And he summarizes in verse 22, are you trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? To which I'd say, you don't want that. You you don't want that. He goes on, verse 23, and he quotes them. We read this earlier in chapter 6, verse 12, but he says in verse 23, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Like he's already said that before. He goes on to say, everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive, and nobody should seek his own good but the good of others. So now, what about that meat that's sold in the marketplace? This is what Paul says. Eat anything sold in the mar- meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So you're saying, here's what you're saying. Leftovers that go to the marketplace for sale, you can buy that meat. Just don't ask any questions. Which might be a good rule anyhow. <laughs> You might want that at Martin's. I don't want any questions. Just give me that. What he's saying is don't go in and say, was this meat originally in the temple offered to idols? Don't ask. it. Just buy your meat and go ahead and eat it. Verse 27. Another issue. If some unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, right? You're now in a private home with an unbeliever. Eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. What's he saying? Don't ask. Just eat. Let's his cow tongue. Then ask. But if anyone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the man who told you and for conscience's sake. And I'm talking about the other man's conscience. I mean, not yours. See what Paul's saying? Oh, no. See, now with that information, he needs to know that we have a new life in Jesus, and so we abstain from it. For why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So you see these things? Can we go back to the temples and and participate in the cultic meal? For Paul, the answer is, nope, you cannot. That's your old life, you left it. But what about in the marketplace? Yes, but don't ask questions. What about in a private home? Yes, don't ask questions. If they say it's been offered to idols, stop eating, which is a bummer, but that's what Paul says, okay? But this is, for Paul, everything is in verse 31. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, because they're still divided. Like, listen, if you don't want to eat from that market, then don't. And what Paul says at the end is, listen, whatever you do, whether you eat, don't eat, drink, don't drink, do everything for the glory of God. And and in some way, think of it like uh, God's reputation, which is weird that we kind of have in our hands the reputation of God. You know, you can make God look bad, and you can make God look good. That's what it kind of means about the glory of God. Whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Like we want to improve God's reputation in some, by our behavior, by our actions. This is what it's really all about. We're concerned about God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, verse 32, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way, for I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Now, let me just conclude with this. Here's, here's why, just in summation. At the very heart of this is issues that we face today, like, can you do that? And you know, don't you? Like, if we were to go to different churches and hand them a sheet of paper and say, would you write on the sheet of paper what a Christian cannot do? Like, that church writes their list, and this church. You know those are going to look different, don't you? Like, some churches are going to have just a very small list. Some churches are going to be like, you can't drink, dance, you can't smoke, can't wear pants if you're a woman. I mean, right? I mean, there's churches out there like that, and, and can't wear makeup, and, right? I mean, not here. We're for that. <laughs> We want to scare demons, but not that much. That's what we're saying. <laughs> I'm teasing. It. It's just a joke. Just a joke. The truth of the matter is, we could add a sheet of paper for every person in this room, and, and he could say, okay, write down the sheet of paper. What you cannot do as a Christian, and you know, if we were to compare sheets, they'd look totally different, wouldn't we? They'd look totally different. So in the end, this is for Paul, the deal. Yeah, sometimes this is just going to be a matter of, of, of just thought and opinion and experience and background and conscience, and you can't change that necessarily. The only thing we could do then is to act in love. If somebody has that on their list, be gracious, kind, and loving. If somebody doesn't have that on their list, be gracious, kind, and loving. That's the, that is just, and so if you were to ask, well, as a Christian, can I do whatever I want? The answer is no, you cannot. It's not because God's trying to put a hammer on your life. It's because love dictates it. Love is the guardrails now of our life that determines what we can and cannot do. You might technically be free, but if the outcome of this thought or attitude or action does not lead to love, then it's out of bounds for us. And this has huge implications because I even hear in churches, I mean, people, yeah, but it makes me, I'm happy. I mean, it makes me happy. And you just need to know God doesn't care about your happiness. I mean, he just doesn't. God's highest aim is not your happiness. God's highest aim is his glory through your life. And what Paul's note here in 1 Corinthians is, I'll even give up and sacrifice things if I have to. And so if you're like, well, I don't care how it affects my kids or how it affects my family or my my fellow employees, and I don't care about all I care, it just makes me happy. Paul says, not with Jesus it doesn't. Love is what matters. And this becomes the guardrail for all things. And the last thing I would say here is you can't go back to that place of idols. I know for most of you, you didn't like grow up in some foreign temples eating cultic meals, but you had idols. And I had idols there were things that we put above the Lord Jesus in our life. And it could be a number of things. It could be money. It could be music. It could be a particular relationship. It could be a hobby. It could be a job. It could be a possession. And I think what Paul's saying, you can't go back to that anymore. You can't go back to that context and that place where that idol resides because you've given your life to Jesus now, and it's a whole new life. Don't go back to that old life. You've got a new life now in Jesus. And finally, in that new life, it's all about bringing him glory. That's what we do. It's all about bringing him glory. So let's stand. Let's invite the band to come on up here. Let's pray. Let's ask God to give us wisdom as we try to figure out life in the context of, these, of, this, te- of this teaching. Father, we give you thanks for your grace. We give you thanks for your mercy. What we're asking, Lord, is for just wisdom to know how to move forward in regards to what it is it we've just read. We know, Lord, that we've called our, you've called us to give you glory and to honor you, and that's what we want to do, and to do so in this parameter of love where we love you and we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so give us wisdom to know what that looks like, what are the things that can be in our life, and what are the things we just need to say no to. And even if that's just different for each one of us, in the end we want to be faithful to you. So we pray, Father, for that. In Jesus' name, amen. One, two.